0: Today on Audibly Speaking, we look at the Warren Commission in advance of the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The Warren Commission has sustained vigorous criticism over six decades, but the question is whether the Warren Commission deserves this scorn. This is your host, Rick Ryman. We will be examining the question of the Warren Commission's alleged mistakes in this program. Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, Audibly Speaking. The subject of today's podcast episode, in commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, is a discussion of the myths about the Warren Commission. I don't think there is any subject that has been more shrouded in myth than the Warren Commission, of all the aspects of the Kennedy assassination that we might talk about. President Lyndon Johnson decided to form the Warren Commission On the Friday after the shooting of President Kennedy, many people suspect that Johnson wanted to use the Warren Commission to cover up some kind of governmental conspiracy or foreign conspiracy or mob conspiracy. Take your pick. All three have been suggested. But that Johnson wanted to cover up the involvement of others in the shooting of President Kennedy by Lee Harvey Oswald. This is myth number one. Johnson really had no choice but to establish the Warren Commission, and if we look at the things that were happening in the week between the assassination and his decision to do so, we see that that decision was perfectly reasonable and logical. Remember that Lee Harvey Oswald was shot to death on Sunday, November the 24th, just two days after the assassination. Oswald would normally have been tried by a jury of his peers, and the American people would likely have accepted the verdict of the jury, which almost certainly would have been guilty, just as the nation found other assassins of U.S. presidents guilty in the past. But Oswald could not be put on trial. And so Johnson faced a problem. The whole nation faced a problem. And that was, how do you help the American people understand what happened on November 22nd if you don't have a trial of the accused? Now, actually, the killing of President Kennedy was not a federal crime at that time. So the jurisdiction of the case was in Dallas, Texas, And in fact, one Dallas official tried to prevent the Secret Service from taking the president's body on November 22nd back to Washington because he felt that the autopsy, because of law, had to be conducted in Dallas. Well, the Secret Service sort of stormed out of the hospital with Kennedy's body, and that was actually a violation of the law, but given the circumstances, it's understandable But between that Sunday when Oswald was shot to death and the time when Johnson established the Warren Commission on Friday, November 29th, there were efforts by Dallas to investigate the assassination, efforts by the state of Texas to do so, and there were also rumblings in Congress that Congress would set up its own investigatory apparatus. Now, this was an exercise in confusion, and the assistant attorney general, Nicholas Katzenbach, urged Johnson to set up an independent investigatory body, that is, one that would have its own subpoena powers and be able to investigate the assassination without interference from any other federal agency or the president. An investigative body that would be able to command the cooperation of the other federal agencies in Washington to get to the bottom of the assassination. So Johnson established a commission of the highest social esteem in the nation. It was a bipartisan panel. There were as many Republicans on it as Democrats. There were two congressmen on it. There were two senators on it, like Noah's Ark, practically. And in addition to that, there were wise men from the American establishment, like John J. McCloy, and Alan Dulles, the former head of the CIA, a one-time friend of the president's, still a friend of the president's family, but the man who had been fired by JFK following the spectacular failure of the Bay of Pigs. So there were other, of course, famous Americans on the committee, and we will look at them in turn. They included people like Richard Russell, the senator from Georgia, who was a Democrat, and an ally of Johnson's, but who was a fervent conservative and hostile to the chief justice who was in charge of the investigation as chairman, Earl Warren. So this got high marks at the time, and it probably should have gotten high marks. The commission was allowed to investigate the crime without recourse to permission from the president and without interference from any federal agency, and indeed the federal agencies were commanded to cooperate with the Warren Commission. They did not do so in the event, but that was because they had secrets that they wanted to keep, and they were determined to keep them from the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission did not know what it did not know, and therefore it could not compel cooperation or the release of these secrets when at the time they didn't know any of them existed. So the Warren Commission got to work immediately, and the myth is that they worked hand in glove with Johnson to cover up the assassination, and that Johnson from the get-go was determined to silence any of the truth regarding the assassination, and was using the Warren Commission as his weapon to do so. Now the Warren Commission was given the FBI's investigation which had been rapidly completed in November and December of 1963. Remember, the assassination happened on the 22nd. But by the end of the year, barely five weeks later, J. Edgar Hoover had declared that he had pretty much wrapped up his investigation and that he knew exactly what had happened. Now, the Warren Commission has been taken to task for allowing the FBI to carry out The investigations that the Warren Commission needed done rather than set up its own investigatory apparatus. But let's try to maintain ourselves in the world of reality. The alternative to using the FBI as the Warren Commission's investigatory arm was to enter a fantasy land in which the Warren Commission could do its own investigation as well as the FBI with no resources to do so. There were no resources to hire an independent investigatory body, and the FBI was the finest investigatory body in the world in terms of its technical capabilities. Now, let's be clear. The FBI did not want to conduct a thorough, professional, and thoroughly honest investigation. That's absolutely true. The FBI wanted to sweep the whole thing under the rug, and that is because of bureaucratic politics. J. Edgar Hoover believed that the assassination must not be permitted to reflect upon his agency, the FBI. And the best way to prevent such a thing from happening was to carry out a swift investigation that would put a punctuation point on the assassination so that the nation would move on. Hoover was also extremely concerned, as he should have been, that his agents had been at fault for not identifying Oswald before the president was assassinated, and that people would blame the FBI for the assassination. He had reason to fear that, because, in fact, his FBI agents in Dallas had done a poor job of following the leads of Oswald's movements and dangerous activities in the months before the assassination. Hoover didn't know how bad they had been because these lower-level FBI agents covered up their misdeeds from Hoover himself, but Hoover didn't want to take any chances, and so he wanted to wrap up the investigation very swiftly. So the FBI's investigation in November and December 1963 was rushed, and because it was rushed, the FBI made a number of errors in its conclusions. For one thing, the FBI concluded that every shot that Oswald fired, and he was supposed to have fired three, hit someone in the car. The first shot hit Kennedy, the second shot hit Connolly, said the FBI, and the third shot hit Kennedy in the head. We now know that this was not true. The first shot actually missed, the second shot hit both JFK and John Conley, and the third shot was the one that struck President Kennedy in the head. But the FBI reported differently in December 1963. They also got some of the evidence wrong in the assassination, again, because they had rushed their report. Now, does this mean that the FBI should have been shut out of the investigation from that point on? Not at all. The Warren Commission had to use the FBI because without using the premier investigatory body in the world... The Warren Commission would have had to hire a duplicate investigating body and somehow have achieved the same level of technical skill and success as the one they were ignoring, namely the FBI. The FBI was not incompetent. It's just that the FBI as a whole was guided by a bureaucrat who didn't want to get to the bottom of the matter. But here's the point. The Warren Commission had the power to use the FBI in a way that would bring scrutiny to the FBI's methods and ensure that when it investigated questions for the Warren Commission, its feet would be held to the fire and the FBI would be watched and there would be no faith in the FBI without checking behind every move by the FBI. But the Warren Commission could not simply dispense with the FBI, and hold a credible investigation. The Warren Commission was immediately suspicious of J. Edgar Hoover. That is, they were suspicious that Hoover wanted to sweep the whole thing under the rug. Nobody suspected Hoover of being involved in the assassination. He wasn't, for one thing. And secondly, they knew that Hoover was very much concerned with his own political fiefdom and would not permit scrutiny of an FBI... That had to be scrutinized. So the Warren Commission was determined to watch the FBI while they used the FBI and to follow the FBI and to work behind the FBI to check its methods to see that it was doing the right job. Nobody else could do that job, and the FBI could do it just fine as long as they were scrutinized, which the Warren Commission was determined to do. The Commission met. In executive committee meetings in December and January 1963, and constantly berated the FBI report. They knew that they would have to investigate the assassination afresh, and that they could not rely on the FBI report, which they knew was riddled with errors. But in those days, agencies of the government didn't come out in public and assail one another, they handled their disagreements in private. So, What did the Warren Commission decide to do? Well, the Warren Commission decided to interview hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, and they proceeded to do that in private sessions. These sessions were not televised at the time. They were held in private, but there were transcripts kept, and the transcripts were later published for all the world to see. These were not secret conversations or secret interviews. They were thoroughly published, and at the time there were discussions within the Warren Commission about the meaning of all these interviews. But once again, many of these interviews were quoted in the Warren Report that was released in September 1964, and every word of these interviews was published in follow-up volumes that were published a few weeks later for all the world to see, and in fact for the conspiracists who did not believe in the Warren Report, to pore over and scrutinize for any errors. It's an irony that without the Warren Report and the 27 volumes of testimony and documentation released by the Warren Commission in 1964, the conspiracy critics would have had nothing to work with. In those days, they couldn't just access government files They were typically held by the National Archives for decades and not available to researchers. This was before the Freedom of Information Act. And so without the Warren Commission publishing vast quantities of documentation in its 27 volumes of hearings, transcripts, and documents, the conspiracists would have had nothing to say, would have had nothing to work with, and we would never have heard from them. So that's one of the ironies of the investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy, that the Warren Commission has been assailed precisely because it released so much information and because it was so transparent. We have learned much since 1964 about what the Warren Commission discussed behind closed doors. So that's not even a secret. But the biggest myth of all is that the Warren Commission was not only willfully blind to the existence of a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy, but that they covered it up, they fully intended to cover it up from the start, and that they were therefore not only incompetent, but deceitful. And this is what you get from the conspiracists. Now, historians are a little less critical, but still critical. Most historians have fallen for the myth that the Warren Commission was simply incompetent, that they did not do a good job of investigating the assassination, that they failed to ferret out truths that they should have uncovered, and that therefore the Warren Commission's Warren Report was a slipshod job, not a con job. Historians do not blame the Warren Commission or assert that the Warren Commission was full of co-conspirators of Lyndon Johnson, or that they were trying to sweep the truth under the rug, but they do accuse President Johnson of trying to rush the report through so that he could move on with the business of the nation and move beyond his predecessor, whose memory hung over Johnson, and so we have to investigate the Warren Commission from a more sensible perspective. Here is the truth. The Warren Commission set out to do a responsible job. They did not trust anyone in the pursuit of their leads. Of course, they didn't assume that President Johnson was a conspirator, but they weren't going to rule anything out. They were suspicious of Cuba, they were suspicious of the Soviet Union, and they didn't have any qualms about looking into the possibility that either of those nations might have been behind the assassination. They couldn't help but wonder, because the assassination was a riddle wrapped in a puzzle surrounded by an enigma, and they knew that, and they knew that there would be no trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, and they also knew that Oswald's murder was extremely suspicious, and that the American people would take it that way. Now a few days after the assassination, Nicholas Katzenbach, the assistant attorney general who had taken over the case for the justice department because the attorney general, Robert Kennedy, was grieving the death of his brother and in no condition to lead the investigation. Katzenbach wrote a memo to Bill Moyers, who was a presidential assistant for the new president, President Johnson. Katzenbach in this memo advised Moyers to make sure a presidential investigation would be supported by President Johnson, or to persuade President Johnson to support a presidential investigation, which of course he did in the shape of the Warren Commission. But Katzenbach's argument was that the American people would have to be helped to understand that the assassination had occurred at the hands of one man and that there were no conspirators that had helped him do the deed. Now, this memo has been the object of controversy and criticism by those who assert that Katzenbach was telling Moyers, advising the president, in a sense, to cover up the assassination. The American people must be convinced that Oswald was the lone assassin. Now I'm paraphrasing Katzenbach's memo. But those words could be taken in two entirely different ways. The ways that the conspiracists interpreted them was that Moyers was being told by Katzenbach that the fix needed to be in. In other words, that even though Oswald was, or probably was, involved in a conspiracy, that the American people would have to be told otherwise and be made to be convinced that something that was not true was in fact the case. But if you think about it, Katzenbach's words were completely innocent and totally undramatic. Think about it this way. Wouldn't it be the job of federal officials in the highest levels of the government to reassure the American people that Oswald was the lone assassin, if indeed he was, And Katzenbach and all the others in the government believed that he was, because by the time Katzenbach wrote this memo, there was a tremendous amount of information and evidence linking Oswald, and only Oswald, to the crime. And so Katzenbach believed that Oswald was a lone assassin. But if the American people did not believe that, even though it was true then the government would be faced with a roiling public that simply did not have to be concerned about a conspiracy if there was no conspiracy. So that's what was behind Katzenbach's memo. He might have said just as well that we know that Oswald was guilty. We know that he acted alone. Or we think we know that. We're pretty sure he did. And if that is true, we must worry about a nation that is riven by dissension over a non-fact, namely the idea that Oswald was part of a conspiracy. So the American people would need to be convinced, because they were certainly not convinced at the time that Katzenbach wrote his memo. And so Katzenbach, who testified about this memo in the 1970s, clearly explained that he was anticipating that. That the evidence would continue to come in as it had already come in, making it clear that Oswald was a lone nut who accomplished the assassination all by himself and for his own inscrutable reasons. He was not involved in a conspiracy. Katzenbach knew that Oswald was not the kind of person who could be involved in a conspiracy because he was such a loner and such a malcontent who was suspicious of everybody and who could not be organized by anybody. So Katzenbach was telling Moyers, well, we have to have some kind of investigation because otherwise the American people would never be satisfied that Oswald was the lone assassin, even though he was, or if you prefer, even if he was. So there would be an investigation. And I think Katzenbach, in the back of his mind, also believed, well, if I'm wrong about Oswald, This commission will come to the bottom of it. So certainly Katzenbach did not believe the Warren Commission would ignore evidence that might show the existence of a conspiracy. He simply didn't believe that such evidence existed or would materialize. And if that was the case, you still have to worry about a divided public that didn't understand that. How could they understand it? Oswald was dead. He was not going to have a trial. How could they possibly understand the truth one way or the other without an investigation to flesh out the truth? And so the only way to look at Katzenbach's memo in a suspicious way is to look at it without seeing two sides to the memo. One, yes, Katzenbach believed that Oswald was guilty and only Oswald. His words reflected that. But secondly, he had to be concerned about a divided public in the absence of an investigation. So I think that Katzenbach would have been derelict in his duty had he not proposed an investigation. And the very conspiracists who cried foul and who wanted a new investigation in 1965 and 66 and after that would have been the first to cry foul if Katzenbach had said, let's not have an investigation in the week after President Kennedy was killed. Instead, he said, let's have an investigation, because the American people would demand it. So I spend so much time on this question of the Katzenbach memo, because it's a perfect example of how the context of these decisions, the context of these comments, are constantly being ignored by non-historians. and By that, I mean people who don't think historically, who don't bring in the contemporary concerns of the moment as well as the contemporary concerns of that time in American history. So now let's look at the work of the Warren Commission, the decisions they made following the investigations they conducted, and we will see that the myth of an incompetent, much less conspiratorial commission, is just that, a colossal myth that must be cleared away by historians and other writers, and is on the verge of being cleared away today by a magnificent new book on the horizon, which we'll talk about at the end of the program. Let's look at the Warren Commission's mistakes. It did make mistakes, but most of the problems with the Warren Commission's investigation was with what I call inabilities. You know that an inability can be a sign of lack of capacity or low competence, or it can be completely unavoidable. If something cannot be determined, then it will not be determined, no matter how able, imaginative, clever or diligent may be the investigator. So what we have are mistakes and what we will call innocent inabilities or unavoidable inabilities. They are not the same thing. First, the mistakes. Pay special attention to the reasons for these mistakes, because if the reasons are a result of human nature or from forces understandable given the times, then even a mistake may be more accurately called an innocent, if not unavoidable, inability. So let's look at the mistakes. First, the Warren Commission rushed through a very short interview with Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy. Earl Warren himself conducted the interview, most reluctantly, because he was concerned for the feelings of Mrs. Kennedy and her family. Understandably so, But a serious investigation could not be achieved without interviewing the closest witness to the assassination, which was Mrs. Kennedy. So when Warren and his assistants arrived at Mrs. Kennedy's home, he only spent 10 minutes questioning Mrs. Kennedy. This was criticized by John J. McCloy, who was also on the commission. Warren insisted that 10 minutes was enough, given her feelings in the wake of the assassination. And Warren also said that Mrs. Kennedy would not forget if they wanted to question her later. In fact, he told McCloy, would you forget anything that happened in such a moment? And McCloy said he would. McCloy said that as time goes on, even the best witnesses begin to forget what had happened. So McCloy criticized Warren for this rushed interview, and almost everyone else has as well. Secondly, Robert F. Kennedy was allowed to submit a letter testifying to his part in the events of November 22, 1963. Now, in, in one way, this makes sense because, after all, Robert F. Kennedy was not on the trip to Texas. He was back in Washington when he heard the news. But he was the Attorney General, and he may have had access to information that would have been helpful to the Commission. He probably should have testified to the Warren Commission because, after all, he was close to the family and he could have interpreted some of the reactions and some of the events that led up to the assassination. But also, as we now know, Robert F. Kennedy knew a lot more about the potential background of the assassination than anybody suspected at the time. In fact, one of the reasons for Robert Kennedy's grief over the next six months and even the rest of his life was because Kennedy likely blamed himself and, to a certain degree, as agonizing as this was, He probably blamed his brother for his own assassination, along with himself, because Robert Kennedy understood that the two Kennedy brothers had been waging a conspiracy, in essence, to assassinate Fidel Castro via the CIA. The two Kennedys were constantly urging the CIA to do more to make sure that the Castro regime would be removed from power, even if that meant through violence. And so Robert F. Kennedy did not want to have anything to do with the Warren Commission. He didn't want to think about it, he didn't want to testify before it, and he didn't even want to send a letter, but send a letter he did, and it was very short. It expressed confidence in the Warren Commission's ability to ferret out the facts behind the assassination. But, of course, Robert F. Kennedy knew more than the Warren Commission did, and he suspected that if the Warren Commission was going to really determine the facts, it would definitely have to include the possibility that Castro had gotten wind of the CIA conspiracies and that he simply got to John Kennedy before the Kennedy brothers could get to Castro. And so what Kennedy knew, what the CIA knew, was vital to the work of the Warren Commission, and the Warren Commission never heard about it. The CIA certainly didn't tell the Warren Commission about it. Alan Dulles, who was a commissioner on the commission, he certainly didn't disclose the secrets, but he certainly knew about them. And so the Warren Commission as a whole did not know what it did not know. And this may be called an unavoidable inability on the Commission's part, because how can you demand access to a secret that you don't even know exists? And so, although the Warren Commission has been taken to task severely for not blowing the cover off of the CIA's secret— Given the times, it's hard to see how they could when those in the know were tight-lipped about that secret. The Warren Commission certainly did not know about it. Now, a third mistake, and this was a mistake, was the failure to avail themselves, that is the Commission's failure to avail itself of the autopsy photographs that were taken of the uh, assassinated president. These autopsy photographs were critical to determining the trajectories of the bullets, the path through the bodies, and whether the injuries of Connolly lined up with the injuries of Kennedy, which was essential to the determination of the accuracy of the so-called single-bullet theory, that is, the theory about the second bullet, which allegedly struck both men, and which helped validate the idea that Oswald by himself could have accomplished the assassination by firing just three shots. While the Warren Commission did not use the autopsy photographs, Warren himself viewed those ghastly exhibits, but he believed that they were too horrible for others to see, and he refused to allow them to be seen by either the commissioners or the Warren Commission staff Once again, no serious investigation could be claimed to be serious without a careful examination by those tasked with investigating the assassination of the autopsy photographs. So this was a terrible mistake on the part of the commission. It was a totally avoidable mistake, but the explanation for this mistake is not a conspiracy. But the sensitivities that Earl Warren, who viewed himself almost as a father to the late president, the sensitivities that Warren possessed towards the feelings of the Kennedy family. Yes, he shouldn't have had those sensitivities. They were bad news for the credibility of the investigation. But they were also human nature. And although we can criticize Warren severely for this tenderness of feeling, which had disastrous results in terms of the credibility of the investigation, we can see that his motives were not to protect the conspiracy, but basically to protect the feelings of the Kennedy family. This autopsy photograph example is a good example of the kind of evidence that was a problem at the time, but which was not a problem over time, because in future investigations, the autopsy photographs would be scrutinized to a fairly well, thoroughly examined, thoroughly studied. And in the House Select Committee's investigation in the 1970s, the autopsy photographs would be so comprehensively studied that there would be no more grounds for wondering if the bullet trajectories lined up to support the single-bullet theory. So here we have a situation where the Warren Commission made a mistake. It was an egregious mistake. There was no defending it at the time. There was no good reason for it. But there was a human reason behind it, not a conspiratorial reason behind it. And the lack of study of the artifacts, the autopsy photographs, did not have to be a permanent omission when you think that the assassination was reinvestigated in the 1970s and the autopsy photographs turned out To lead to no overturning of the Warren Commission's findings, to the extent that the House Select Committee disagreed with the Warren Commission, it was not because of the autopsy photographs. Another error was somewhat minor, but Earl Warren had a tendency to lose patience with reporters. And when reporters hectored him, demanding information about the state of the ongoing investigation in February or March 1964, and asked if they would ever see the documentation from the investigation, Warren actually said, yes, you'll see it, but probably not in your lifetime. That was probably the worst thing that Warren said during the course of the investigation. And I suppose this was a result of his impatience and his Feeling that the august Supreme Court Chief Justice and his august fellow commissioners would not lose the faith and following of the American people. And so Warren was not careful in his talk to the reporters. But of course, that has been seized on by conspiracy critics as some kind of diabolical statement that uh, the Warren Commission was not going to reveal secrets that would show a different outcome in terms of the investigation of the assassination, than the one that the Warren Commission was prepared to release. It was a political mistake on Warren's part and no more. Another mistake was to have an artificial deadline. The Warren Commission was hoping that it could finish its work by the summer of 1964. When they found that they could not do that, they were given more time and they were allowed to keep working until September 1964, when they finally released the report. President Johnson was in a campaign for election in his own right as president, and Johnson politically very much wanted the Warren Commission to wrap up its work before the presidential election, because he did not want it figuring in the campaign. Johnson didn't know whether it would be a hindrance or a help, but he wanted to put as much distance between himself and his predecessor, simply because he wanted to be his own man. And so there was a kind of unconscious pressure on the Warren Commission. Johnson did not put the pressure on them, but they just knew that Johnson wanted the work wrapped up as quickly as possible, and they wanted to oblige him to the extent that they could. Mark Lane later called this a rush to judgment. Why weren't they given more time? But at the time, during the warren commission investigation critics like lane were wondering why was it taking so long and so this hypocrisy on the part of the critics should not be forgotten at the time mark lane was one of those demanding that the warren commission come clean sooner rather than later and after they issued the report in September 1964, he accused them of a rush to judgment. Well, it couldn't be both. The staff lawyers did not think all of the questions that they had been examining had been run to ground. They really wanted more time. For example, Wesley Liebler believed that there should be more time investigating the Sylvia Odio story, in which supposedly Oswald had turned up on her doorstep in Dallas, in late September or early October 1963, with two Cubans connected to anti-Cuban political movements. A sixth mistake was the failure to televise the hearings. Now, this is seldom discussed as a possible problem for the commission, or a possible error, or a mistake, whatever you want to call it. But we know that congressional hearings and investigations had been televised before. For example, the Kefauver hearings and the Army McCarthy hearings in the 1950s. Given the fact that the JFK assassination had been the most televised event in history, there was a reason to believe that the Warren Commission hearings could also be televised. Had they been televised, the American people would have gained more access to the evidence against Oswald, the overwhelming evidence, and they would have been able to see much as one could see in a jury trial. The evidence began to stack up against Oswald and against no one else. But instead the hearings were held in secret and the American people didn't have access to the report or to the documents or to the conclusions of the Warren Commission until September 1964. Another mistake was the failure of the commissioners to keep abreast of the investigative leads and to understand the factual underpinnings of the report. What I'm talking about now is the fact that some of the commissioners, particularly the politicians on the commission, had track records of attendance that were absolutely abysmal. For example, Richard Russell, the Democratic senator from Georgia who hated Earl Warren, was busy opposing President Johnson's civil rights bill in 1964. And so he missed many of the hearings, many of the meetings of the Warren commissioners in 1964. And so Russell was not familiar with the investigative evidence that was piling up against Oswald. He was thoroughly confused, for example, about the evidence in support of the single-bullet theory, which was advanced to a remarkable degree by the Warren Commission in Arlen Specter's investigation in Dallas and in Washington. But again, Russell wasn't at those meetings, and he only really learned about the single-bullet theory studies and conclusions when he read the report at the end of the investigation. Russell went to his friend, President Johnson, and said that the whole investigation of the single-bullet theory was a mishmash, and it didn't make any sense. And President Johnson is supposed to have replied to his friend, Richard Russell, I don't believe it either. But of course, President Johnson was not involved in the Warren Commission at all. He had no connection to the investigation by Arlen Specter. He wasn't paying attention. He had no more knowledge of it than Russell, or rather we should say that Russell had no more knowledge of it than President Johnson because he missed so many of the meetings. But these were politicians whose voices would be heard in later years and who would be assumed to have credibility on these questions, which they really did not, given their lack of attendance. Gerald Ford, one of the commissioners on the Warren Commission, actually had an excellent record of attendance, and Ford later wrote a book about the assassination, and he was one of the most supportive. Of the Warren Commission conclusions, in no small part because Ford attended all the meetings and took his job seriously, unlike Russell, and studied the evidence and weighed it and came to the same conclusion that was found in the Warren report itself. An eighth mistake was the failure to welcome post report leads should they arise. In other words, the Warren Commission should have been somewhat open ended. It should have released its report in September 1964, but then have said, we are open to considering new evidence should new evidence arise. In that way, the Warren Commission would have immunized itself from criticism for rushing the report, and there would have been an opportunity for the Warren Commission to answer questions as they arose over the next few years. But of course, President Johnson would not have liked that because he wanted again to be his own president, and he did not want the ghost of JFK to be following him indefinitely. So that was not done, but it should have been done. Again, investigations don't usually end in an open ended fashion. So, given the history of investigations, given the times in which these investigations were happening, given the politics of 1964, It's unrealistic to expect the Warren Commission to have an open-ended investigation. And as a result, we might consider this to be an unavoidable inability. A ninth mistake was a little bit hard to explain, but let me try. The failure to apply consistently the rule that if evidence arose as to motive that Oswald might not have seen, it should be excluded from the report any potential evidence that pointed to Cuba or the Soviet Union as motivations for Oswald's action in killing JFK was viewed as so potentially explosive that it could not be published unless it could be 100% traced to Oswald. For example, if there was a newspaper article, as there was, that showed Fidel Castro threatening JFK for trying to assassinate he, Castro. And if Oswald might have seen that newspaper article, which he might have in September 1963, then it's possible to make a connection between Castro's awareness of the plots against him by the Kennedy brothers, or by President Kennedy, that's what Castro said in September 1963, Oswald could have seen this newspaper article, and that could have motivated him to do what he did on November 22, 1963. But the commissioners, especially Lee Rankin, who was in charge of the legal staff, refused to publish this September article in the New Orleans Times-Picayune, showing Castro accusing Kennedy of plotting to assassinate him. Rankin refused to publish that in the Warren Report because there was no hard 100% evidence that Oswald actually saw this article. Never mind the fact that Oswald was an inveterate newspaper reader. Never mind the fact that Oswald did not have a TV and he got all his news from the newspapers. And he always managed, or almost always managed, to read the papers on a regular basis. This Rule that nothing should be published unless it was 100% traced to the eyes of Oswald was not followed when the Warren Report published the famous advertisement that appeared in the Dallas Morning News on the morning of November 22, 1963, a wanted picture of JFK published by a right-wing group. There's no evidence that Oswald saw that either. But Rankin allowed that to be published. But they were so afraid of opening up a political can of worms that might lead to World War III by linking Oswald to the Soviet Union or to Cuba. And they did not know, of course, about the CIA's plots against Castro, which Castro was alluding to, that they refused to apply the same standard to this September article in the New Orleans Times-Picayune, that they did to the advertisement in the Dallas Morning News on November 22nd, 1963. In view of what we now know, this refusal seems more diabolical, but in view of the fact that people didn't know this connection, didn't know that the Kennedy brothers were plotting to assassinate Castro, it seems to be another innocent inability, although perhaps less innocent, given the contradiction of publishing one such article and not another. If Rankin had been more courageous on this issue, if he had published this article, there would have been an opening to determine whether, indeed, there was something to Castro's story. That is, was Castro correct that the government was plotting to assassinate him? Perhaps if the investigation had done more work in that direction, The issue of motive would have been cleared up, and indeed, the failure to produce a motive for Oswald was one of the signal omissions from the Warren report. The Warren Commission punted on the question of Oswald's motives. They did not know why he did it, and they did not do more than speculate on a number of possible reasons he may have had they did not come down to one. Had they investigated this Cuban connection, they might have had a motive that would have gone far to satisfying the American people's desire to know whether and why Oswald committed the assassination. This would have laid conspiracy theories to doubt, But it would also have created political problems for the Johnson administration, which was inheriting the Kennedy administration's foreign policy with all its skullduggery as well as with its achievements. In our next program on Audibly Speaking, Part Two of the Warren Commission The Warren Commission's Strengths. Having examined the Warren Commission's alleged mistakes, which really seem to this observer to be unavoidable inabilities. We will look next at the strengths and achievements of the Warren Commission, and we will see the Warren Commission in a whole new light. Join me for that episode next on Audibly Speaking.